Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Neurology Podcast, In Conversation With. I'm Cahill McQuillan. In this episode, we'll be discussing the prediction of autism in infants, including the progress that has already been made and the challenges that lie ahead. I'm delighted to be joined here today by the lead author on the paper, Professor Geraldine Dawson from Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, USA. Geraldine, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Happy to do it. Brilliant. Thanks very much. So can you please start by explaining what autism spectrum disorder is and how it is currently diagnosed and at what age? Sure. So autism spectrum disorder is a condition where uh, people have challenges really navigating the social world. So they may, for example, have trouble picking up on social cues. Uh, They may have trouble with the back and forth of a conversation, maybe uh, have some difficulty making friends. And then people on the spectrum also have uh, what we call a restricted or narrow range of interests. This could be anything from trains to license plates. And often the person will want to talk about those things and really focus um, their attention and interest on those. And then finally, uh, repetitive behaviors are common. And this could be things like hand flapping or some unusual mannerisms. And I should add that with the latest um, uh, diagnostic tool, the DSM-5, Uh, they actually added a new behavior, and that is uh, sensitivity to sensory input. And this could be sensitivity to touch or to light or to sound. So the way in which we diagnose autism is through a set of structured observation of the child or adult's behavior while they're interacting with other people, because autism is a behavioral diagnosis. And so, for example, the examiner might... um, play with the child or call the child's name or ask the child to imitate them. So they use a set of structured, uh, standardized probes. And then depending on how the child responds, they then score, you know, either the child has this uh, autism-related behavior or not. Um, In terms of when we can diagnose this, uh, it can be reliably diagnosed by 18 to 24 months of age. Unfortunately, at least in the United States, the average age is much higher. It's closer to four or five. Uh, could even be higher for families of color, for girls, um, for children who, who not only have autism, but also have other kind of psychiatric conditions. So we, we do have our work cut out for us in terms of being able to get that age of diagnosis down to when we know we can reliably diagnose it. Um, autism affects boys more than girls, about a four to one ratio. And then finally, autism is a spectrum. It's very variable. So for example, some individuals are going to need 24-hour full-time care. They're not going to be able to learn to speak. About 30% of people never use spoken language, but although they can use other forms of language, Whereas other individuals are going to go to college, they're going to marry, have children, uh, and live independently. So it's this very, very wide spectrum. But just just a quick question. You said that it's often uh, autism spectrum disorder is often diagnosed much later than the typical 18 to 24 months. What are the typical reasons for these delays? Um, Is there any usual? Well, first of all, a... uh, 
the healthcare system would have to be implementing a universal screening of autism to be able to be picking up on um, every child who might uh, go on to have a diagnosis. And often that's not the case. So we do have good questionnaires, uh, at least in the United States, it's recommended that every child be screened for autism at 18 and 24 months of age. Uh, but in practice, um, that doesn't always happen. And then the other thing is that even when a child uh, shows signs of autism, pediatrician may or may not refer for an evaluation. They may take more of a wait and see approach. And sometimes this is because we don't have the services available. And, you know, it's hard to make a diagnosis if you don't readily have something to offer the family. And we do have um, a challenge in being able to meet the needs of all the individuals that need services uh, that are diagnosed with autism. Um, so there's there's many different reasons. Um, it's it's a you know it is a complex diagnosis that requires a specialist that's had training, and there really aren't enough of those specialists. So for example, it's not uncommon if you're referred for an evaluation here in the United States to have to wait six to twelve months before you can see someone. Um, and so I think all of those um, contribute to delays. Can you tell us why early protection is needed and uh, what would this mean for, for clinical practice? Well, we know that the behavioral signs of autism emerge uh, between 6 and 12 months of age. So, you know, when the child is a baby during the first year of life. And this is well before when we can make a diagnosis. And if we could identify those babies during that early period, then we could begin to promote, you know, language and social development at a time when the brain is typically learning those things and when the brain is most plastic. So several studies have actually shown that there's benefit of providing intervention to infants during this early uh, period. Even though they can't be diagnosed, if they're starting to show these signs, um, being able to work with parents to teach them strategies that they can use during everyday activities, such as bath time or dinner time, to promote that baby's uh, social and language development. And um, these are uh, interventions that are readily learned by parents, so they're not you know, very costly. And so the idea of, of being able to identify these babies and then being able to give parents something they can do that can help their baby learn to interact and begin to learn language, you know, can be really helpful. And then finally, um, a number of studies have shown that earlier intervention is associated with better outcomes. So, for example, um, your ability to acquire language skills, to go on to a general education a classroom to, to be able to develop friends. And so um, the goal is to start, you know, really early when the brain is still developing and then to um, help the child have the best outcome possible. So in your review specifically, you focus on three domains for the protection of autism during infancy. Uh, these were brain development, physical health and behavioral development. Firstly, can you explain what brain-based bi brain biomarkers are and what they can tell us about the likelihood of a later diagnosis of autism. Like other conditions that affect the brain, uh, we believe that the changes in brain development and autism occur much earlier than when we can start to see the signs of, um, of, the, of autism in behavior. 
In fact, if we um, look at postmortem studies where we've analyzed uh, the brain tissue or genetic studies where we've looked at uh, what the genes that are associated with autism, what they're controlling in terms of brain development, these uh, studies suggest that the changes begin uh, during the prenatal period. So changes are occurring very, very early uh, before we see the behavioral manifestations. So scientists have been studying whether we can detect these changes before or at the time that the behavioral signs begin to emerge. And most of these studies have followed infants who have an older sibling with autism. So we know that if you have one child in the family that's been diagnosed with autism, that the chance of the second child um, developing autism is much higher than the general population. So about one in five will go on to um, have a diagnosis of autism, whereas in the general population, the prevalence is estimated to be more like one in 44. So by following these infants that have a higher likelihood of a diagnosis longitudinally and then collecting data about early brain development, after then they are later determined to either have autism or not, you can look backwards and see, is there really anything different early on that predicted that the child would go on to have a diagnosis? Now, some of these studies have used MRI or fMRI to examine the structural and functional development of the brain. And other studies have used EEG or near-infrared spectroscopy to um, study regional uh, brain activity. And the MRI studies have found that you can uh, detect differences in structural brain development between 6 and 12 months of age, perhaps even earlier, but most of the studies have started at 6 months. And one of the most replicated findings is brain overgrowth. So what's been observed is there's increased cerebral cortical volume, especially in the occipital and the temporal and the frontal regions. Um, recent studies have shown uh, an overgrowth of the amygdala, for example, uh, during the infant period. And then measures uh, using something that's called dif uh, diffusion tensor imaging, which allows you to look at myelination and ax axon density, they have found um, differences in the white matter fiber tract development, again, between 6 and 12 months of age. And then finally, another MRI finding that's very interesting and has been replicated is a finding of increased extraaxial uh, cerebral spinal fluid by um, age six months. And um, so it's this phenomenon of extra CFF, uh, CSF volumes. And we do know that the CSF plays a role in clearing metabolites such as amyloid B and pro-inflammatory cytokines from the brain. So it's, it's interesting to see that in these babies that go on to develop autism, that um, you see these differences in brain. And then the other finding using EEG is that as early as three months of age, um, and then following these babies longitudinally, the trajectory of their um, EEG activity, particularly looking at the EEG power spectrum, is very different and distinguishes the babies that will go on to develop autism from those who don't. And then the final um, point I wanted to make is that we can use something called event-related potentials where we present a stimulus and then measure the, the brain's response to that stimulus 
And what's been shown is that by six months of age, that babies who will go on to develop autism are less responsive, for example, when they see a face or hear the sound of a human voice. So this suggests that the brain, that uh, the parts of the brain that are really responsible for processing social information are um, developing differently very early in life, even before we start to see these behavioral manifestations. So in terms of the, uh, the second domain, how, how do physical health conditions differ in infants who are later diagnosed with autism compared with infants without a later diagnosis of autism? So this is an area that has not gotten as much attention, but I think is very important. So, and, and this is one of, of a number of studies, but our team at Duke recently published a study where we used electronic health records to examine the physical health conditions that infants in the first year of life who go on later to have a diagnosis of autism, what kind of physical health conditions they were experiencing. And what we found was that um, during the first year of life, the babies who go on to have um, autism have uh, problems such as GI problems, uh, sleep disruptions, uh, they might have seizures, ophthalmological problems, and also are showing early motor delays, which is not actually part of the diagnostic criteria, as well as speech delays, which we would uh, perhaps expect. And what this is suggesting is that autism is a condition that affects both behavior and physical development. And these um, physical conditions are important because we know that, you know, your nutrition and your sleep are actually affecting how the brain develops in that first year of life. So we feel this is an area that could be a target of intervention uh, to be able to, you know, promote better physical health during the first year um, with the goal of actually promoting better brain health. I know that uh, in the paper you hit on the fact that these conditions, it's interesting or a question of whether some of them are, are causal towards autism spectrum disorder or consequential. But it's very likely, I imagine, that many of them are both, you know, that potentially they'll have a role of causing. But I know that with sleep, it's undoubted that, um, as you say yourself, it could be a mode of intervention as well, that at the very least it could help relieve symptoms or potentially uh, slow down some of the consequences later down the line. So, no, those are those are really interesting points. Yeah, I should, I, I, let me just add one point here, if you don't mind, which is that um, the other, uh, I think, useful thing that about looking particularly at electronic health records and then you know, understanding how they differ for a, a baby who would have a diagnosis of autism later is that this can be used itself as a prediction tool. So uh, we can use, for example, uh, machine learning of the electronic health record to develop uh, prediction models. And so if you could imagine that when a pediatrician opens, you know, their chart, they're going to go see, um, say, a one-year-old and if it popped up because the computer has been gathering this information as the baby is developing and said, you know, based on our algorithm here, this baby um, has a higher likelihood of developing autism. That might encourage then the pediatrician to, uh, you know, screen that baby or pay more attention and, and, uh, and hopefully make a referral, you know, earlier. That's great. 
So you also talk about uh, behavioural markers. Uh, what type of behaviours are typically seen and, and from what age do these behaviours become apparent? So the earliest signs of autism begin to emerge again in that six to 12 uh, month period. And they include um, the baby making less eye contact than one would expect, maybe showing less interest in people. The baby may fail to orient if you call the baby's name, which you should be able to do around seven to nine months of age. Um, And you know that during this period that babies are beginning to babble and they're making these consonant vowel sounds, baba, mama, and using them in a very communicative way. And we know that they will be doing less of that, and less responsive to your sounds. And then as you get towards 10 to 12 months of age, there's some very important gestures that begin to develop. And these are called joint attention or shared attention gestures. And they are things like pointing at things and showing things. And these are uh, much less likely to be present in a baby who will go on to, to develop autism. And then finally, uh, there's an interesting literature emerging that shows that even at six months of age, that babies who go on to develop autism are showing motor delays, uh, suggesting that the motor system is important. So all of these early signs are uh, hopeful ways that we could begin screening uh, for autism in, in infants. I know earlier on you mentioned that they've recently added a kind of sensitivity to touch as well. Would that be another uh, behavioural trait that would be seen in infants or is that a a later trait? No, that has actually been seen and that's been um, documented in a couple of ways. One is to um, actually ask parents, you know, because some babies are very sensitive to sound and um, they're, they get easily overwhelmed and over aroused. And so when you ask parents, um, they do report that there's higher levels of this sort of over arousal and, and sensory sensitivity. And then other studies have used EEG, again, that event related potential to look at how the brain is response, uh, responding to stimuli. And particularly when we present a stimulus to the brain repeatedly, what happens is our brain habituates to that response. And you see over time that you should see this degradation in response as the brain habituates. And what we find is that these babies that go on to develop autism are not showing this normal habituation. They just remain high. So you can see it uh, in the brain-related measures as well. That's fascinating. So my, my last question, so despite all the progress in identifying the differences in early brain development, health conditions and behavioral characteristics that are associated with later diagnosis of autism, I understand that there are still challenges in translating these findings into screening tools that can be used in clinical practice. What are the key factors that need to be addressed for, for future success? Well, as I mentioned earlier, most of the studies to date have been conducted with uh, infant siblings, so uh, infants who have an older sibling with autism. This is only a subgroup of the large um, population of individuals who have autism. And so we do need to do studies where we focus on more heterogeneous uh, samples that are uh, from the general population Another challenge is that autism is often associated with other neurodevelopmental and psychiatric conditions. In fact, 
co-occurring conditions is more the rule than than not. And so, for example, uh, autism can be associated with intellectual disability, uh, with language delay, with uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, with anxiety. And these uh, features can affect early infant development as well. And so we need to have studies that are large enough that we can actually sort out the impact of these other uh, co-occurring conditions on how the child will present. So for example, we know that if a child has both autism and ADHD, that they are much more likely to be delayed in their diagnosis because the presentation is much more complex. And so it's just harder to really um, be able to reliably screen and diagnose autism when you have two conditions. Uh, The other thing is that studies to date have mostly focused on analyzing just group differences and have not uh, focused on individual level prediction. And so there are, you know, statistical methods that get to the question of sensitivity and specificity, uh, positive and negative predictive value, which you would really need to be able to understand to say, this is how many kids are going to be missed. You know, this is how many kids who are going to be falsely identified as having, you know, risks for autism. And so those kind of studies are, have not been as common and we really need to move in that direction. You know, another factor is that we do believe that ultimately the best early prediction or screening approaches are going to be multimodal. So, you know, when you think about going to get screened, say for heart disease, your doctor's going to use multiple measures, right? It could be cholesterol and it could be your weight. It could be your family history. And they, they integrate uh, different sources of information to understand what your, your profile is. So we do need to use this multimodal approach. So for example, one study showed that when you combined the child's brain response to a, to a face stimulus with their genetic background, that you did a much better job at predicting than if you just used one uh, by themselves. And then finally, we really need to think about these screening tools in the context of clinical care. So how would they actually be used in practice? So it's, it's, for example, if we're talking about something like MRI, is that feasible, right? Is it cost effective? And then what are the risks and benefits of screening in early life um, in terms of uh, perhaps worrying parents that don't need to be worried? Um, Do we have the kind of treatment approaches that would be readily available so that if a parent is told, we think your baby, you know, has a higher likelihood of autism, that, that we can then offer them some strategies that they can use at home. And I do think that with regard to the latter point, that particularly with telehealth and other ways of being able to implement uh, these relatively low-cost interventions that are delivered by parents, um, we do have the chance of being able to link the screening to something that could improve outcome. And of course, that's, that's very important. We don't want to screen without being able to offer something that could be helpful in terms of long-term outcome. That's brilliant. Um, that's, that's all the questions I have for you. But thanks so much again for, uh, for taking the time to speak with us. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. You can read Professor Dawson's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Professor Dawson and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. 
Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually get your podcasts.